morning. Welcome to Sierra Bible Church. If um, I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Jesse and one of the pastors here on staff. We um, are going to be in John chapter 19 this morning. And so if you don't have a Bible and uh, you want one, you want to keep one, you can take this Bible with you. If you uh, uh, just want to follow along and you forgot your Bible, you can also use your iPhone. I heard one pastor call that your fake Bible. So if you want to pull out your fake Bible, you can do that. Um, but uh, turn to John 19, and I just want to highlight one thing before we before we get into that. Um, I don't know if you've ever, <clears throat> in at any point in time in in reading the Bible, there's there's one over here in the corner too. If you've ever come across uh, maybe a contradiction in Scripture, and, and you didn't know why that contradiction existed or what seemed to be a contradiction, I don't know if you've ever asked the question, well, why do we have the Bible that we have? How come? How can we believe that it's the Word of God, it's inspired and all that? I don't know if you've ever asked those questions, but we're going to answer them tonight. Brad Beers, one of our elders, is going to be teaching um, on that particular topic, Bibliology, uh, tonight at 5.30. So I want to encourage you to come. Um, and, and I would preface it with, actually, uh, this week, someone in our church sent me an article said, what do you think about this? The title of the article was, uh, A Progressive View of the Bible, which you should always be a little, a little leery of, of the word progressive. And there is a group of evangelical Christians, they call themselves progressive Christians. And basically, it undermines um, Scripture and it being the Word of God. And basically, the view is that um, it's somewhat inspired, but it's not completely inspired. It's uh, kind of inerrant, uh, but not really. And this is something that we're going to need to um, you know, combat in culture. And, and it kind of stinks for me when I think about it. The Bible's always been under attack, so it's nothing new, but... Um, it's hard for me sometimes as a pastor to think not only, not only do we need, we as Christians need to, you know, defend the faith and, and show people who Jesus is and preach the gospel, but we also have to like, you know, defend the Bible to people who you shouldn't have to defend the Bible with because they believe in Jesus. Uh, so anyways, I think it's really timely that Brad's teaching on it. If you've not met Brad, that, that's him right there. Brad, you have anything you want to add? No. <laughs> Perfect. I've done my job. Um, so I'll be there tonight, and uh, we meet in Ray Hall, and it's it's a good time. Um, I get to do a baptism in a little bit here after the service, too, so be ready for that. And then if you want to get baptized, we'll just do it if you want to do it. So let me know. You're going to get wet, but that's okay. Uh, it's a warm day. Um, we have been in the Gospel of John. By the time it, in June, it'll be a year, and I don't think we'll we'll trickle into June. We may, and if we do, then congratulations it'll be a year and um i think i initially when we started it thought you know we'd be in the segment that i'm in around good friday and around easter and and because i'm long-winded and full of hot air we didn't quite do that we, we've blown past easter and and but this particular segment as we've been in john we're at the cross and if you noticed a lot of the songs that we sang uh this morning were on the cross and and um th- this for me before we read it and we get into the history of what occurred uh, on Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus died. Uh, this has been a hard week for me to study. This is what, I don't know, like, uh, s- several of you have probably seen the movie The Passion. I've seen it one time. And I have, over the years, because it's been out now for close to 20 years, I think, uh, at some point in time, I was, oh, I'll watch it again. And I just can't pull myself to, to do it because it is so brutal and... And it's just heart-wrenching. I remember walking out of the movie theater 
we, we uh, as a church in San Diego when I was there, we rented out a whole theater and all of our staff, you know, a couple hundred of us at the time, um, watched it together and I couldn't speak for probably several hours. And so, you know, you kind of go into that going, um, you know, if you're going to watch it, knowing that it's just going to wreck you. And, and we're, we're in this piece this morning that, that I almost, I almost found myself this week, like, okay, I need to prepare everybody. And we're going to a place that's hard and, and you're going to hear things that are violent, but they're true. And, and we'll, we'll realize the extent of why these things occurred. We know, most of us know, but we'll still revisit them this morning. And, but it was a hard week for me to not just spend a couple hours like watching The Passion, but to spend hours this week reading about the details of the flogging and the crucifixion that Jesus went through. And it just there's just moments as I'm reading just going, man, I, I, I think I would rather teach 1 Corinthians 13. You know, But I wouldn't be doing my job if I came here this morning after we've been in the book of John almost a year and said, turn to 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to talk about love. And, um, and so we're here and we're going to, someone said to me after the first service, thank you for teaching the hard parts of scripture. And that's what we want to do. And, and again, you know, as Brad will be teaching on uh, bibliology uh, at 530 tonight, and our church is named Sierra Bible Church. So you know we have um, a practice that, that we do every week where we stand uh, during the reading of scripture. And so if you're able to stand this morning, I want to encourage you to please stand with me as we read from John chapter 19, starting in verse 1. I'm not going to read the entirety of 19, though we'll cover most, most of 19 this morning. Verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and, see, uh, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are, no Caesar, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone of Payment, Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the Skull, in Aramaic called Golgotha, 
There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where, it was, where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. Lord, I pray this morning you would allow your word to be clear, our hearts to be open, and our minds free of distraction. I pray, Jesus, we would have a clear understanding that you are in this room with us, that you are not just a member of this body, you are the head of this body, and that we would hear your voice, and we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. You may be seated. All right, let's dive in. Verse 1, after already making the declaration, Pilate stating that Jesus was innocent and that there was no guilt in him, he then, to appease the Jews and the anger of the Jews, took Jesus and they flogged him. This flogging was violent. What Jesus endured, oftentimes to endure this kind of violence, many of the victims would die. So you understand the history of what this included. Pilate already stating six times now, has stated that he is innocent, yet he still takes Jesus and he, the, the, the victim, Jesus, would have been stripped of all of his clothing. Uh, sometimes I, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the reality that, that our Bible is much more graphic than many of us as Christians like to depict. Oftentimes, if you walk into, for instance, a Catholic church, you'll see that Jesus is still on a cross, unfortunately, because he's, he's not. But on that cross, you'll see that Jesus is, is he's covered with a robe or a loincloth of, of, of some kind. But the reality, though, is Jesus would have been completely naked. So Jesus would have been stripped naked and, and to shame him, really. It was an act of shame to make him feel small and, and vulnerable and and then, then the victim would be placed upon a pole. And on that pole, it'd be just, just a, a slightly taller than, than the person who was being flogged. Or the person being flogged would be forced down onto their knees and strapped to the pole with hands overhead in order to make the skin nice and tight. And a soldier would stand on one side and another soldier would stand on another side. And they would take turns beating the victim with what was called a cat of nine tails. It was, it, it was a, a weapon with a wooden handle and leather straps. And at the end of the leather straps would be jagged sheep bone or metal balls or uh, some kind of obviously painful thing at the end that allowed it to have enough weight to dig into the flesh. Uh, the result of, of this punishment, well, f- well first of all, so you understand that, that typically you would take 40 lashes minus one. The idea would be that you would be whipped 39 times, not 40, because minus one, that was kind of an act of mercy. However, the Romans were not held to such a standard. Oftentimes, they would take turns beating the victim until the tortures were either exhausted, the victim died, or the commander would say, okay, enough is enough. In this kind of beating, it would expose both muscle, bone, deep blood vessels, and even organs themselves. I need you to understand that, that, that this beating was, was 
was designed to shame the person being beaten in addition to weaken them so that they would die quicker on the cross. We also have to understand when we think about the sacrificial system as well and what it took to sacrifice a lamb for the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament, there would have been a tremendous amount of bloodletting. A tremendous amount of blood would have been shed. Now, as I stated, oftentimes the victim wouldn't even make it to the cross. They would just die in this beating. And yet Jesus doesn't, doesn't quite die, we, but we do know that, that he, he had enough strength to carry his cross, a 75-pound to 100-pound beam across his shoulders for a short period of time, but he wasn't able to make the complete journey, and so someone else helps him carry that cross. But before that, in verse 2, we see that they shoved a crown of thorns upon Jesus' head. And this isn't the kind of little rose thorns that you and I think about. These were long and sharp and jagged, and they would have been thrust upon Jesus, causing even more pain to trickle down him, his face. The thorns, though, also show us something. If you remember the curse, right? the title of the message is the one, uh, the one who's blessed becomes cursed, or, or the cursed uh, falls upon the one who is blessed, or, or another way to put it is he became the curse so we could have his blessing. And, and in Genesis, if you remember, part of the curse of mankind, if you remember, God says, unto you, man, when you work, uh, the ground will, will, will produce for you thorn, thorn and thistle. Any gardeners here this morning? Right? You still have to deal with weeds every year, don't you? You still have to deal with uh, trying to grow that plant, and it's kind of a battle. It's always a battle. But the reality of the curse, the thorn, is that no matter how hard you work, you never feel fully accomplished. Right? There's, always, there's always the next time. There's always the next time. Like, you know, I, I like to go to the gym, and so when I go to the gym, you know, I get X amount of weight, but I'm never satisfied. I want to get more. I want to get more. I want to get more. Or if you're a runner, you want to run another mile. If, you, if, you're, if you're someone who's wanting to make money, you always want to make another dollar. We're never satisfied. That's, that's the thorn. And so the crown of thorns is, is emblematic of the curse of mankind being thrust upon the head of Jesus Christ. And then if you look at verse 3, in addition to the thorns and the beating and the mocking with the purple robe, we're told that Jesus is struck by the soldiers. Now, Roman soldiers were trained, violent men. They, they're probably the best of the best when it came to fighting and how to kill and, and their military tactics. I mean, these were, these were brutal men. They've been, many of them trained from, from childhood to be brutal men. And when they weren't in the time of war, or were, if there wasn't some kind of uprising within the city, they, they would get bored. And this would be a game they would play with, uh, with the person being beaten. It was called hot hand. And, and what they would do is they'd blindfold the, the victim. They, they'd place the, the, the cloth over their eyes and they would punch him and they would say, Tell me who hit you. Who hit you this time? And, and in this case, prophesying, they would say to him, prophesy who hit you now. Prophesy who hit you now. Now, if you've ever fought someone or gotten in a fist fight of any kind, I hope you haven't, but if you have, you know that you can typically see the punch coming. You can somewhat deflect it. You can kind of move out of the way, but the victim in this case would have taken the full blow. Luke 22, verse 64 tells us they blindfolded him and they asked him to prophesy who hit you. This has been prophesied as well, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 52, verse 14 shows us that even the movie The Passion of the Christ wasn't quite violent enough. 
as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred behind human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah tells us that the beating that Jesus took was so violent, so aggressive, so hard to look at that you couldn't even look at him and say, that's a human being. His face would have been literally beaten to a pulp. And after all of this, to a degree, Pilate is, is trying to appease the Jews. And so he brings Jesus out in verses 6 through 7. No, I'm sorry, not verses 6 through 7. Where's the, he brings him out and he says in verse, uh, verses 4 through 5, after stating many times, I find no guilt, he says, Behold, the man. Right, Pilate, Pilate doesn't want to crucify Jesus. He doesn't want to necessarily kill Jesus. He, he finds no guilt in him. He's already made the declaration, and yet... They're pressing, the crowd is pressing on him and pushing on him. And so after beating him and after, after making him look as if he's not even like a man, just imagine the scene. The crowds are ruckus and they're wild. And now Jesus is standing there with a robe on his back, which clearly is now pressing in, most likely, into his wounds, coagulating and being pressed together. So when they rip the cloak off and place him on the cross, he endures even more pain. He's been beaten, he's been humiliated, he's been shamed. Now he stands before the people. And if you can hear it in Pilate's, Pilate's words, he's saying, Behold, the man. And in a sense, you can, you can hear him saying, He's not your king. He's not a king. He's not a threat. He's, he's not a god. He's not a deity. He's, he's just a man. And yet the crowds press. Crucify him. Crucify him. John 10, 32, Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Early on, we see the innocence of Jesus. He doesn't deserve this death. And the Jews answered him. This is why they want to crucify him. The Jews answered him. It's not, it's not for a good work that, you're going, that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. They believed he was he believed he was committing blasphemy, saying he, he is God. So Pilate stands there. Imagine, if you will, for a moment. Pilate, Pilate doesn't want to kill this man. And, and, and if you, you see one of the verses, says, it says from that moment on, Pilate sought to release him. So there's, there's details that we're missing where Pilate is trying to, to release Jesus, and he can't do it. He can't do it. And the reason is because of, of what they say to, to Pilate. If, if you don't kill this man who says he's the king, then, then you're, no, you're no friend of Caesar. You're no friend of Caesar's. Now, this is important. Let me give you some history to understand that Pilate crucified Jesus because he was on thin ice with Rome. Pilate was in a position of authority in part because he married into the family of royalty. And when Pilate first came into power, Pilate marched into Rome. And when he marched into Rome with the, with the Roman soldiers, the Roman soldiers, he had each of them carry these long poles, and at the top of a, these long poles would have been a bust of Caesar. Because Caesar was like a god. And so th he, he comes in brazenly with Caesar's image into Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is supposed to be a holy place, and the Jews believed there was to be no image of any god within the city. No images. No idols was kind of the thinking. So when, when Pilate comes in with these large poles, with this bust, they, 
They rebelled. They were upset. The, the Jews were infuriated that he was coming in with a false god into their holy land. And so the people actually began to protest. And then, and then what, what Pilate did is he brought all of the people together in a great crowd. And he said to them, if you don't stop your protesting, I'm going to cut all of your necks. But what happened next, Pilate wasn't ready for. You know what the Jews did? Go for it. Do it. And because it would have been so many people, Pilate had to recant. He had to pull back. Well, Rome heard about it, and he had to, that he had to recant his word and showed some weakness in his leadership. And so Rome was probably upset about this particular instance. But the, the second one was that Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was growing. It was bustling. It was a, a tourist area. Lots of people were coming in once a year, especially for the Passover. Right? Remember Josephus tells us? that 256,000 lambs were slain at one Passover. That required a lot of water. And so he said, we need to build an aqueduct, but Rome wasn't going to fund it, and, and Pilate didn't have the money for it. So Pilate went in to the temple and basically by force took the Jews' money. And of course, they protested, and Pilate ended up disguising several of his soldiers uh, as citizens to go into the crowd and kill many of the people as punishment. Again, this got back to Rome. You're not supposed to be killing people that are subjects of Rome, that, that are maybe even supportive of Rome. But then there was a third one. See, Pilate couldn't get over the image of Caesar, and within the uh, Antonia Fortress, the military barracks, the Romans... Uh, really kind of place where they would hang out and sleep and what have you. There was no Jews in there, so, so Pilate thought he was safe. And, and what he did is he, he put a bunch of shields with the image of Caesar on the shields within the fortress, thinking he was safe. No one would hear about it. The Jews won't see it. Well, word got out. Word got out that, that Pilate had these false images. And, and so, again, the, the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, they went directly to Caesar, and Caesar demanded Pilate take out those shields out of the barracks. You see this tension that Pilate is in a bad relationship with the Jews. The Jews don't like Pilate. Pilate doesn't like the Jews. And so they say to Pilate, if you don't crucify this guy, we're going to tell your daddy. That's essentially what they're doing. So now Pilate, who's highly superstitious on one end, he, he, he's been taught most of his life that there are multiple gods and you don't want to wrong those gods because those gods may destroy you. And he sees that when he, he hears that Jesus may be the son of God. He's scared. If I do something to this man, maybe he'll take me down. But then, but then the crowds are telling him, you're going to lose your position and your power. We're going to tell Caesar, you need to crucify this man. And he ends up going with the crowd. Luke 23 Luke 23, verse 23 says they were urgent, the, the Pharisees, demanding with loud cries that he, Jesus, should be crucified. And then here's, here's a takeaway for us, something to learn. But their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. See, Pilate went with the crowd. Pilate went with the popular notion. He went with the place that everyone was going. How many, how many of you have made a, a stupid decision maybe years ago, maybe yesterday, based on the, the reality of someone saying, hey, man, everybody's doing it. Anybody this morning? All right. I know there's more than the guy in the corner over there. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. Everyone take note of the one man who's going to heaven this morning. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, the people's voice prevailed. 
And then in verse 16, we're told that Jesus delivered him over to the soldiers to be crucified. The crucifixion, the crucifixion is the climax of redemptive history. When you think of your redemption, you being purchased by, by God's blood to be a part of his family, all of the Old Testament is, is pushing towards this. And all of the rest of the New Testament is telling us about what has happened. And, and, and what stands at the, the pinnacle of, of all of Christian history is the great cross. There's no symbol in anyone's history that produces as much visceral emotion as that, is there? Years ago, uh, some of you remember, we used to have just a beautiful, like, 1970s vibe in here, yellow shag carpet and a big old wooden wall. Anyone remember that? It's beautiful, yeah. He's showing his age. <laughs> it's wonderful. The 70s were the best. And um, we had a wooden cross here, and when we, we took it down, we put it on the side of the building. There were several people in the church who, who were like, <gasps> And ever since then, we've had people request, when are you going to get a cross back up? When are you going to get a cross back up? Right? It's, it's a symbol we want in the center of our churches. It's, it's what we want on our necks, and, and people get it tattooed, and it's become a pop icon culture, or, or it's been degraded to some point. I remember when my, my mom got saved, and she came home, and I had, at the time, I thought the coolest Guns N' Roses shirt I could possibly buy. I got it at a carnival, so you know it was top dollar, and it was a cross. And if you remember, it was each of the band members with their skulls on each end, and my mom said, absolutely not. We're burning it. <laughs> Along with all my other CDs at the time and all my posters that were hanging up, we, my mom went through a purge and just, you know, she was forcing me to repent, and I was not really excited about it. <laughs> it's the one symbol that, that if you see it sitting upside down, it, it produces and it elicits an emotion. We all know that that's wrong. There's something wrong with it. This is, this is the cross. This is the, the electric chair of the day. But, but the cross wasn't invented by the Romans. It was actually invented by the Persians. It was the Romans who, who perfected it. And the whole point of it was to shame the victim, but to ensure its extermination of the victim. On this particular day, John Bloom says it's Friday, April 3rd, A.D. 33. It's the darkest day in human history, though most humans have no clue of this. In Rome, Tiberius attends to the demanding business of the empire. Throughout the inhabited world, babies are born, people eat and drink, marry and are given in marriage, barter in marketplaces, sail merchant ships, and fight battles. Children play, old women gossip, young men lust, and people die. But today, one death, one brutal, gruesome death, worst and the best of all human deaths, will leave upon the canvas of human history the darkest brushstroke. And Jerusalem, God the Son, the creator of all that is, will be executed. To be murdered on a cross was to shame that person, to belittle them. And, and in addition to that, it tells us that Jesus was numbered in this passage with the transgressors. He, he died between two thieves, two men that deserved the cross. And he was, he was in the middle of those two men. Now the cross, as it tells us, it was placed upon this, this hill, Golgotha, which is Latin for Calvary. That's where we get our word that he, he died on Calvary. And on this particular, this particular place, it would have been set 
by a very busy road where people were coming in and out of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that, that when an animal was crucified or, or was, was slaughtered for sacrifice, it was to be taken outside of the city to be burned. And Golgotha was outside of the city. The sacrifice of all sacrifices is taken outside of Jerusalem to die along a street where every passerby could see exactly what was happening to that person, to mock them, to spit at them, to, to wag their finger at them, and to be placed in the middle was to have a special place of, of basic decontamination. This is the, the most shameful of all. And, and here he sits in the middle of these men as a spectacle to be seen. The Bible tells us in regards to prophecy that, that he went without resistance as a lamb that is silent before, before its shears. It tells us that, that he carried his own cross Prophecy also tells us in regards to the, the sin being taken outside and that he'd be between two other people. And much more, there's, there's a ton of other prophecies that predict exactly how the Messiah would die. And then in verse 7, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not verse 7, verses 19 through 22, Pilate mockingly to get back at the Jews to kind of stick it to him, writes above the cross, King of the Jews. And he writes it in three different languages. What's interesting about this, and, and Pilate, I'm sure, didn't intend to do this, but, but there's a great thing for us, to, for, for us to learn. See, Jerusalem was a very diverse place. There was lots of different cultures there. Kind of like America is becoming more and more diverse. This is Jerusalem. So he writes the Aramaic language, which is the language of faith and religion, the, the Greek language, the, the language of the education and, and culture, and then the Latin language, the the language of the Roman law and order. This is to prove to us, to show us that, that Pilate didn't realize that, that, that Jesus is the king and the God of, of the Hebrew, the Greek, and the Latin. He's above uh, all of faith and religion. He's, he's above all education and culture, and he's above all law and all order. He's the God of all these things, and he's the, he's the God of a diverse culture, a diverse group of people. Pilate didn't do it, but he was expressing something to be true. This Jesus is the Savior of the entire world, not just America, not just Mexico, not just Africa, not just uh, Middle East, but all people, all places, everywhere. The gospel is for every living human being. Jesus died on the cross for all races and, and all subclasses, all groups of people. When Jesus says, go into the world, the, 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 the word there that's used within Matthew 28 is ethne, it's, it's people groups. We had some missions training yesterday, and, and the guy who was training it showed how, how that particular word floats into all of these different places in the world where you have one subgroup of people, but then you have like 2,000 other subgroups of people, and those 2,000 subgroups are other subgroups of people. It's every people group, every tribe, every tongue, every person. This is the king of the world dying on the cross that people would have eternal salvation. Pilate doesn't know it, but it's true. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's king of all people. And here it tells us in verse 18, they crucified him. They murdered him. Again, as I stated, the Persians invented it. The Romans perfected it. It was reserved for the worst of crimes and the worst of people. This is no righteous man's death. About the cross, one commentator says it like this. Crucifixion, as a means of execution in the Roman Empire, had its express purpose, the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. 
It cannot be said too strongly that that was its function. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with subverse ideas that the crucified persons were not of the same species as either the executioners or the spectators and were therefore not only expendable but also deserving of ritualized extermination. Therefore the, therefore, the mocking, the jeering that accompanied the crucifixion were not only allowed, they were part of the spectacle and were programmed into it. In a sense, crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Everyone understood that the specific role of the passerby was to exacerbate the dehumanization and degradation of the person who had been thus designate, designated to be a spectacle. <laughs> to be a spectacle. The idea being to make the person hanging on the cross to dehumanize them, to take them of their humanity. The God of the universe who made man in his image is now being beaten beyond recognition. Goes on. Crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. According to the Christian gospel, the Son of God voluntarily and purposely absorbed, absorbed all of that, drawing it into himself. Th there is absolutely no way this morning that I could make this more grotesque and more violent than what really happened. You would have to be there in order for it to really hit home in a way that shook you to your core. And one thing, just from an apologetic point of view, just, just so we're aware, this is not how you revolutionize society. This is not the way you start a religion. If someone came to you, hey, listen, we're going to change the world. All right, let's change the world. How should we do it? Well, first, we're all going to go get beaten up. And then we're going to die. And this is going to become the symbol of our movement. Is it... The reality here is, is in this is one, normally on the cross, they wouldn't die for days, but that wasn't the case for Jesus. He was so beaten and suffering so much so that, that he, he died very rapidly. We don't have time to get into it, but Psalm 22, penned by David. Most of the Psalms from David, he went through. You can actually track them, but in Psalm 22, you can't see this. He, he says in Psalm 22 that, that he's poured out like water and his bones are out of joint and his heart is like wax, his Strength is dried up, his tongue sticking to his jaw. It's a, it's a picture of the crucifixion. It, it actually tells us in Psalm 22 that, that if you listen, he says, they stare, they gloat over me, they divide my garments, they pierce my hands, they pierce my feet. All of this is in Psalm 22, far before the actual crucifixion. In addition to that, in order to prolong his suffering, if you look at verses 28 through 30, of chapter 19. After this, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they poured a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This was to prolong the suffering. This wasn't water. This was this was something to even shame him even further. Again, I don't have time to go into to some of the context of this, but this is not, this is not someone doing something to bless him. This is, this is something that, that is to prolong the suffering and prolong the shame of Christ. And when he, he drank it, it says that 
He bowed his head when Jesus received the sour wine, and he said, it is finished. And then he, he gave up his spirit. There is a part of me, if, if it isn't a part of you, that, that thinks of these kind of things and says to myself, I'm not exactly sure I want to dive into this on a regular basis. As someone said, uh, hopefully we're a little cheery next week, huh? We're in the part of the Gospel of John that we can't, we can't avoid this. We can't try to make it sound better than it is. In all of our kids' books and all of our, even sometimes in certain Bible translations, they do everything they can to, to make this not, not as radical as it really is, not as ugly as it really seems. Even the Passion of the Christ, like I said, it, I don't know if you remember when it came out, but there was a big hubbub about it being rated R, a big hubbub about, about how violent this movie was. It wasn't as violent as what history really records. Maybe that's something that, that scares you. Maybe that's something that offends you. Again, I, I ask the question when I read this, why, why on the world, why in the world was it so brutal? You know, we've done everything we can as a culture today to make execution as humane as possible, haven't we? You know, it used to be, a, it used to be an electric chair and we put a, something over their head so you couldn't see what was happening to the person's face and and now all these years later, we, we now use injection needles to the point now where we even discuss uh, the moral issues of, of um, the, uh, helping someone commit suicide through a pill. Doctor, doctor, uh, what's the? Okay, you guys all get it, I guess. Um, here's three things I think that we need to understand from this. One, the reason it's brutal is because God hates sin. He hates it. But it's not just the hating of sin. It's, it's, it's hating the effects of sin. You see, the most violent thing that can happen to a person is to be violently removed and stripped away from an intimate relationship with their maker. The, the violence of sin. It show, the reason Jesus had to die, the brutal death that he had to die, in part, is for us to understand how radical sin really is, how, how dark sin really is, that, that when we mess with those kind of things, we're losing our inhumanity. Jesus had to become, in, in a sense, inhu- not a human, to be, to be made look like he wasn't a human, so that we could be made whole again. We could be who we really are. Sin mars us and strips us of the imago Dei, the, the being made in the image of God. That's why you see things in the, the Gospels where, where, if you remember, it says, your father is the devil. Your father isn't supposed to be the devil. You've been made in the image of God. Your father is supposed to be God. You're to be in a loving, intimate, life-giving, thriving relationship with the creator of the universe, and sin has stripped us away of that, and Jesus takes the violent death that we deserve to bring us back into right standing, righteousness with Jesus Christ. Part of the takeaway of this is the, the great Thomas Watson said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. You, you, in order to get rid of sin, you've got to hate it. You've got to come to a place where you just loathe it. 
I said at the first service, and it, it bears repeating that, that if you can sin and not feel some kind of guilt, you should question your relationship with God. Like, if, if you can go on lying about whatever you're lying about and not confess that, there, there's a problem. If you can lust and not feel conviction, if, if you can dive headlong into gossip and not feel conviction, if, if you can steal money and not feel conviction, if you, you can do any of these things that we call sins and not feel conviction, you should question your right standing before God. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with those things. And it doesn't mean that you should have condemnation because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But it means that when you know that Jesus has made you holy through the act of the cross, you know that you should be living as if that were really true. And if you're not living that way and you don't feel convicted of it, how can you actually be in right relationship with Jesus? So now all of a sudden there should be a part of us that questions the safety of our eternal soul. Jesus came and died this death so he can reconcile people back to himself and give them a better life and to live as if sin doesn't exist, to live as if you're not, if you're not convicted of those things is to live in a lie. You're still fractured. You're still broken. You've still been violently torn from your relationship with God. And it would be my hope that you would hear the great invitation of Jesus this morning to be reconciled to this God who is the greatest missionary that history has ever shown us. He literally was in the comfort of the kingdom of heaven with angels singing his praises in perfect communion with the Holy Spirit and God the Father in perfect harmony with him. And he looked across the ocean of eternity and he said, let's make a trip and let us go to these lost people and show them how to be saved. Jesus is our example of love for people hate for sin. Because in addition to seeing the hatred of God towards sin here, we see the love of God. In that moment, he becomes the curse. He becomes the curse of mankind so that we can have the freedom that exists within God. And then the, the great declaration in verse 30, it's finished. The climax of history Jesus came at the right time and he came to the right place, to the right people for you and I to be sitting in Truckee, California and to be experiencing the goodness of him. It wasn't by mistake. We have to, we have to reiterate here. God gave God. He was not a victim. He volunteered. He went to the cross to die for your sin because he wants to be in relationship with you. Isn't that good news? The declaration of it is finished. You don't have to strive to get to God. You don't have to toil to get to God. You don't have to do a bunch of to-dos and make sure you avoid all the don'ts to get to God. He did it. I want to close with a quote, and then we'll get to a little bit more joyous stuff. We'll get somebody wet. All for it. You ready, buddy? It's a little lengthy, but it's powerful. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. His garden is a much tougher garden, and as his obedience is imputed on us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. 
Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answers the call of God, who leaves all the familiar comforts of the world into the void, not knowing where he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not only offered by his father on the mount, but was also truly sacrificed for us all. Well, God said to Abraham, now I know you truly love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son from me. Now we, at the foot of the cross, can say to God, now we know you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blows of justice that we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and disciple us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates the new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He is a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for us and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes the people's victory even though they didn't lift a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost ultimately the heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life who didn't say if I perish, I perish but when I perish, I perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we can be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true life, the true bread. Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. Jesus tasted death for us that we might share his life. Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing Jesus endured our poverty that we might share his abundance. Jesus bore our shame that we might share his glory. Jesus endured my rejection that I might have acceptance with the Father. He was cut off that we might be joined to the Lord. Our old man was put to death in him that the new man might come to life in us. Is that the, do I have one more? I thought I had one more. No, that's it. It's enough, isn't it? You see, if you remember one last piece here in the verse, the people just call Pilate on it. They say, hey, you're no friend of Caesar. And if you see later, the, the Pharisees stand up and they say, we, we have no king but Caesar. That's blasphemy. Because the only king they should have had is God. And they traded in the blessed one for Caesar. Seventy years later, Caesar marched into Jerusalem, tore down the temple, and exterminated 1.5 million Jews. There is only one true king who came not to force you to serve, force you to be part of his kingdom, but came to lay his life down for you to save you, not destroy you. Amen? So, we're going to baptize Ford Olson today. Come on up, buddy. You know, there's some stairs right here. I'll, 
coach you along. We'll, we'll, your dad said to hold you under for 39 seconds. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't be scared. I got you. You all right? Okay, hold on. There you go. I'll help. What? That's nothing like the Truckee River. We'll make it quick, okay? So remember when we talked about baptism, bab nothing, nothing spectacular happens here other than you get to tell all your friends. See all these people out here? I got to preach to them every week. Sometimes if you take your glasses off like this, they don't look as scary. You want to try? <laughs> I know, I'm blind as a bat. So these are your friends. These are, for the most part, as far as, as far as I know, all these people out here, they love Jesus. Many of them have obeyed the commandment to be baptized. This is a commandment that Jesus gave us. He gave us two kind of really important commandments. One is to be baptized, and the other one is to take communion, which we do once a month. And you're obeying your commandment that Jesus gave you because you believe in it. Remember when we were at dinner, and I said, why do you want to get baptized? And you said to me, because I hear a voice telling me to do this. And so I want to ask you for it, and you tell all your friends here, because you're, you're preaching the gospel to them right now. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? And do you believe that he rose again from the grave to give you new life? Yeah, you can do it with authority if you want. Like this. So when we baptize you, and this is for the church as a whole so they know, the Bible talks about Jesus in, in many ways like water. He's living water. And that he gives us new life and he washes us clean. And when I go to help you go under the water, it's, your, it's the old man, the old Ford, the sinner that was Ford, being buried with Christ and being raised again. That you now, Ford, for the rest of your life, you have a right relationship with Jesus and you're new in him. Isn't that good news? Huh? Yeah. yeah Let me pray for you. Yeah, it is. You can preach to me too. Hold on. Yep, there you go. <laughs> All right. Let me pray for you. It's... It's cold. <laughs> we got a towel for you over here, okay? We'll make, I told you I'd make it quick, but I keep lingering. Here I am. <laughs> um, Lord, thank you for Ford, and um, thank you for this young man standing up in front of his friends to share that he loves Jesus. We thank you for him. And now, Ford, I baptize you. Put your hands on your nose for me. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Give my hand. High five. Okay, now, mom, you want to help him? Good job, buddy. Did you say hallelujah? <laughs> All right. So, um, I want to I want to give an invitation. We've done this before, and others have come forward <clears throat> with explaining what baptism is, and and I recognize maybe you you came this morning not not prepared to be baptized, but it is a commandment as I shared. And I just want to extend the offer to anybody that uh, wants to get in and, and get baptized. So just raise your hand if that's you this morning. If, if there's no one, that's okay. But, but if there is, I'd, I'd love to. I see some people debating here in their heads. Whether they... It's not that cold, I promise. Brad, let's do one more. You want to get you in here real quick? All right. Last, last call. Come on, if you feel the conviction and you feel like God's leading you.
All right. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your day. Let's sing and be thankful for the work of the cross. Amen. Amen. Amen.